This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, today we are going to be talking about one of these feasts that comes around every year that I just love. Uh, we're talking about the, the feast of the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Christ, Corpus Christi, as it's uh, often known. And the reason this is one of my favorites uh, is in part because this is one that I didn't grow up with, right? I, as a Protestant, I grew up with with Christmas and Easter, uh, even honestly with Christ the King Sunday and some of these other feasts that uh, that were added later in in the life of the church. The Protestant churches, many of them have adopted those. So I, I grew up with, with those feasts and didn't really understand feasts in, in any way other than, hey, this is how we're going to focus our readings and our worship today. Um, but, but I had some knowledge of those. As we get into Corpus Christi, of course, this isn't one that we really celebrated because we didn't have a, the same concept of Christ's presence with us. Uh, and so I love it when this one comes around. There's a number of reasons that that I think this is so great. One is I, uh, I'm i a hymn guy. I like hymns. Um, and Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas has written us some beautiful hymns focusing on Christ's enduring presence with us in the Eucharist. And many of them were written for this feast. And they were written not just for the purpose of having a song to sing, but they're deeply catechetical, right? So here we here we have this, we return to this phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayer, and our songs, our hymns, our prayer, the law of prayer is the law of belief. The things that we sing, the things that we pray, are the things that we truly come to believe in the depths of our heart. And uh, and it's because we meditate on those things. That's kind of the purpose of song. Um, and and then the law of belief is the law of life. The things that we put into ourselves, the things that we choose to meditate on and to dwell on are the things that will form us. And as we are formed, so we will behave. Uh, so this these hymns are important as we come to celebrate this feast. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of them. Uh, as we go on throughout our day. But uh, the other thing that I love about this is it draws again to mind um, God's enduring presence. This is his promise to us throughout all of Scripture. Over and over, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell among you, right? This is the promise, the central promise of God. Um, and and so we have in the, in Corpus Christi, in the solemnity of the the most holy body and blood of Christ, we have this first reading is from that Mosaic covenant where God comes and meets with the people of Israel and says, okay, here's, here's the deal. Uh, here's the covenant and here's the scenario and you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell among you. That's the, the gist of this. And then from there, he actually remained with them in a tangible way, right? The the pillar of fire and of cloud that, that led them through the wilderness. So too, as God makes his covenant with us, he remains with us 
and not in just a mystical and spiritual way that is intangible, but he leaves us with his presence in a very real and tangible and accessible way in the Eucharist. In addition to the the hymns that we traditionally sing congregationally, there's also this, uh, in the midst of the readings, after the epistle, before the gospel, there is a sequence. This is one of the few days of the church year that has a sequence provided that is that is sung by the cantor generally. And there are a couple of sequences that occur throughout the year. Most of them are required. Um, there's one uh, or two that are optional. Um, but I have been in parishes that just assume that they're, they're all optional. And so because of that, maybe maybe you're in one of those and haven't heard the sequence. Uh, maybe I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't worry. Uh, but I am going to read it for you because, as I said, these are deeply catechetical uh, instructions on the Eucharist. And so in case you don't hear this again tomorrow, this catechetical sequence uh, is presented to us in the midst of the liturgy of the Word. Laud, O Zion, your salvation. Laud with hymns of exaltation, Christ your King and Shepherd true. Bring him all the praise you know. He is more than you bestow. Never can you reach his due. Special theme for glad thanksgiving is the quickening and the living bread today before you set. From his hands of old partaken, as we know by faith unshaken, where the twelve at supper met. Full and clear, ring out your chanting. Joy nor sweetest grace be wanting. From your heart let praises burst. For today the feast is holden when the institution olden of that supper was rehearsed. Here the new law's new oblation, by the new king's revelation, ends the form of ancient rite. Now the new, the old effaces, truth away the shadow chases, light dispels the gloom of night. What he did at supper seated, Christ ordained to be repeated, his memorial ne'er to cease. And his rule for guidance taking, bread and wine we hallow making, thus our sacrifice of peace. This the truth each Christian learns, bread into his flesh he turns, to his precious blood the wine. Sight has failed, nor thought conceives, but a dauntless faith believes, resting on a power divine. Here beneath these signs are hidden, priceless things to sense forbidden. Signs, not things, are all we see. Blood is poured and flesh is broken, yet in either wondrous token, Christ entire we know to be. Whoso of this food partakes, does not rend the Lord, nor breaks. Christ is whole to all that taste. Thousands are as one receivers, one as thousands of believers, eats of him who cannot waste. Bad and good the feast are sharing, of what divers dooms preparing, endless death or endless life. Life to these, to those damnation, see how like participation is unlike with issues rife. When the sacrament is broken, doubt not, 
but believed tis spoken, that each severed outward token doth the very whole contain. Not the precious gift divides, breaking, but the sign betides. Jesus still the same abides, still and does remain. Lo, the angel's food is given to the pilgrim who has striven. See the children's bread from heaven, which on dogs may not be spent. Truth, the ancient types fulfilling, Isaac bound, a victim willing, Paschal lamb, its lifeblood spilling, manna to the Father sent. Very bread, good shepherd, tend us. Jesu, of your love, befriend us. You refresh us, you defend us. Your eternal goodness send us in the land of life to see. You who all things can and know, who on earth such food bestow, grant us with your saints thou lowest, where the heavenly feast you show, fellow heirs and guests to be. As I said, these hymns are deeply catechetical, and there's a lot that St. Thomas is trying to get across to us. But the point is, is that Christ, through this covenant, um, and we, we reference a whole bunch of covenants in the readings tomorrow, is promising us his enduring presence. And this is the same promise that's been given throughout the Old Testament and remains with us today. Uh, as we talk about this feast of Corpus Christi and kind of what sets it apart as we focus, I think it's a really good time for us to talk about it, specifically as we're coming out of the end of uh, the pandemic and out of uh, the virtual experience of worship and back into an in-person, in-present uh, all the time, back in community uh, kind of worship, it's important for us to reestablish and remember why the Eucharist is so important and what that tangible sacrament is all about, because this is what sets us apart. This is why we don't have large um, multi-campus churches that all watch uh, worship on a screen, because Christ is the incarnation. He comes to be with us in person uh, and and to bring us his full presence. So to talk about that today, we have uh, joining us Derek Roddy, who is the Director of Evangelization and Discipleship at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Jackson, Tennessee, also author of the book uh, Called to Conversion, I believe. A life of conversion. Called to a life of conversion. We had a, a conversation about that book uh, previously on the show. You can find it in the archives by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, finding Derek's name there in the right-hand side of the page and clicking on it. Derek, thanks for being back today. It's my pleasure, T.L. Uh, it's just a great blessing to all talk about the Eucharist. So, as I said a little bit earlier in the show, this this is something, um, you know, we celebrate Christmas and Easter and all of these other feasts of the church. <laughs> Strangely, in my Methodist church, and I'm going to assume in your tradition as well, we didn't really celebrate this feast. Uh, right, yeah, and, and, and I, must, uh, I must admit, I, uh, I came into the Catholic faith when I was in my uh, early 20s after about a decade of uh, what you might call pagan debauchery. Um, and so, so being really immersed in the, in the Protestant tradition is, is not, uh, you know, is not, is not so big in my background. Um, but yeah, I don't remember, um, 
I, you know, it, it, we talked a lot about the crucifixion uh, every day and, 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 you know, and that was about it. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I echo that. I remember speaking of that, and this is kind of uh, a side note to it. I remember going to an Easter sunrise service um, where the old rugged cross was the song that they sang. And it's like, right, you, right, you right. know, you know, we just had Friday. <laughs> this, is, right. this is Easter Sunday, right. uh, but there is, there's right. this kind of hyper-focus um, on, on the resurrection, but also on the cross. And they n- never are completely um, focused on, on their own. Um, right. I remember, well, that, that's a story for another time. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I too was, uh, was Methodist growing up. So that, that, um, that dynamic resonates. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, um, your experience early on as a Catholic, uh, coming to see and, and wrestle with the Eucharist because it's different than, than what we had in the Methodist tradition. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is, I mean, this is like from the get go, from the outset of, of my conversion process, uh, the Eucharist was, was just there and it was, it wasn't really an issue for me in the same way. Now, so I told you I spent a number of years um, through through high school and college being more or less a um, an ag- a practical agnostic, but I had spent some time with my mother in uh, the Episcopalian uh, denomination, and of course you probably are aware, and your listeners are probably aware that is a uh, a liturgical uh, community, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a liturgy. And if you've ever been, um, at least when I was there 20 years ago, it looked and sounded almost identical to a Catholic liturgy, right? Yeah. And in my life, I've come to learn this. I am one who places great significance on words, on what is said, on the meaning of words. And so when I went into that as a 15-year-old boy, um, I, I, I just was hearing the words and thinking to myself, oh, those are true. That's what they mean. They mean what they say. Yeah. And, and that Episcopalian minister does the same thing that the Catholic priest does and extends his hands over bread and wine and says, let these become the body and blood of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, so I thought that was true. I thought that's what was, was, was happening. Um, I didn't ever really have a, well, I guess in, in some sense, I may have uh, understood it metaphorically because again, I was 20, 22. I may not have, um, you know, I, I certainly hadn't thought about it as deeply as I might have or as deeply as I have since then. So it may have only been a real metaphorical understanding, but um, nonetheless, it was, I, I, I took the mean, the words to mean what they said, what they meant. And, and then um, I, I started dating my, uh, my, my beautiful wife um, and she, uh, she was Catholic uh, lifelong. And uh, she invited me to go to church with her and um, and, and she said, but you can't receive the, the Holy Communion. 
And I said, well, why not? And she said, well, you don't believe that it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And I said, well, yes, I do. That's what, that's what the minister prays every week. And she, um, you know, she didn't have an answer for that. And, and I thought it was a pretty good objection there. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, out of, out of respect for her, um, mm-hmm. just, you know, really, really, really liking her, probably loving her at that point. Um, uh, this is very early in our relationship. Um, she, you know, I, I, I did not receive the Holy Eucharist that day, but it started me questioning because I went to that mass and I was watching and I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I am a, um, I can be very uh, intellectually critical. And so I was looking, man, I was looking for the, the loophole. I was looking for the, the, um, the double standard. I was looking for any and everything that, uh, that I could find to, to, to prove that I was right. I mean, that's how it always is, right? right? I'm always just trying to prove that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Um, so that set us on a, a, a search. Actually, she and I, uh, parallel searches, I wouldn't say together because we, we never really just sat down and, and, and looked at these things together, but I would ask her a question and she would go to, um, you know, find the answer in a, in a priest or a, you know, a textbook. She was actually teaching at a Catholic high school at that point as well. Um, or I would go do some internet, uh, you know, research and, and, um, and finally it, it hit me. Um, I, I had a conversation with a, uh, with a priest that, um, that really led me to, it was over a Christmas break of graduate school. My Christmas break reading for that graduate, that, that, um, for that semester was uh, Fides et Ratio by John Paul II, mm-hmm. um, the, the light reading, which again, that's a, that's a little separate issue from the Eucharist, but um, it, uh, it just, it got me to a point where I was diving deep. I was diving deep. And about a two months later, I, uh, I called the local parish and uh, said, hey, I'm thinking about this Catholic thing what do I need to do? And, and the woman who, who had answered the phone and, and took the call uh, told me, you know, we've got this thing. It's called RCIA. It's on Tuesday nights. You just come on. And she knew I was a historian. That was my first uh, round of graduate school. She said, well, the, the, the first one that you could come to is on church history. And I actually, I didn't go to that when I was still a little scared in my mind. I said, I said, no, nah, I think I'll wait a week. And so the week that I showed up, the, the topic was the Eucharist mm-hmm. and the, the pastor was teaching it because he is a, a world renowned Eucharistic uh, scholar from, you know, uh, typology and, and all these things and um, has been doing it for 40 years. And, and he gave me the first lesson really in Catholicism, right, Um, on the Eucharist. And the thing that I remember that really stood out to me, he said, you know, he he went through the philosophical, um, you know, the whole gamut, right, the space-time and matter transformation, right, that he did that. But he looked at us and he said, he said, God gave us, an eternal commandment in Exodus, right? That's recorded, and this shall be a commandment 
for all generations. And now he's changing it. Now it's being changed. If you're going to change a commandment of God, you better be the son of God, right? Right. And, and, and so that, I was in. I mean, at that moment, I was in. And, um, and I, I cannot tell you just how, how appreciative I am for that and how respectful and, and of uh, Father Bill Parham is his name. Uh, I am for, for that single moment being just like a, a real uh, clinching moment of me not only understanding the Eucharist, but understanding the divinity of Jesus. And, you know, everything just fell into place at that moment, you know. There is this sense in Catholicism that, uh, that we either be, we, we have to either be very right or we're all very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if, if the resurrection isn't real, if Jesus isn't who he says he was, if the Eucharist isn't what we say it is, uh, kind of like, what are, what are we doing here? But we believe it, right? Yeah. We, you, you mentioned in that, um, as you were talking about your RCIA, that father unpacked typology to you in case someone is unclear what typology is let's dive into into that a little um in in the sequence that we read just before you came on there's this whole little section this one little uh stanza on the typology and uh, if you've ever heard the word typecasting you know in a sense what typology is right that there is this uh this certain or or stereotype right there's this type that's out there that points to a greater reality and so uh here in the sequence um we have uh this well, I'm, I'm looking for it right now as we're talking um truth the ancient types fulfilling so uh, th- there's this phrase that all the things in the in the new testament are hidden in the old and all of the things of the Old Testament are revealed in the New. So it says, truth, the ancient types fulfilling, that there are these types, but that Christ fulfills them. Isaac bound, a victim willing. Paschal lamb, its lifeblood spilling. Manna to the Father sent. So here we have uh, the, the redemptive sacrifice, the trusting sacrifice, and the sustenance in the desert. And Jesus fulfills all of these types in the Eucharist. So you you talked about your your first experience hearing about typology. Uh, maybe break that out a little bit more than than that brief stanza that Saint Thomas Aquinas gave us. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you did it so well. I, you know, um, I always reference. Of course, I I am a parish uh, you know minister and and you know, do a, a lot of RCIA teaching, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to, you know, and we're in the, we're in what we call the Bible belt, right? We, um, and, and so people want to know from scripture, right? What, what, why is this true? Why should I believe this thing instead of this thing that I've been raised in? And so we're doing a lot of typology, showing them as St. Augustine says, St. Augustine's my patron saint, that the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the old is made manifest in the new. And that's just, that's the one that, that I always go to that, uh, you know, um, I think captures it uh, most quickly. The thing that always I watch the, the, the RCIA uh, inquirers and candidates when, when we're doing this, and when we go through the Eucharist, 
I love watching it because light bulbs start going on in their heads. Um, the, uh, the, the episode in Genesis 22 with um, Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain for the sacrifice. And we walk through every detail of that and show that by the end of it now, of course, I'm, uh, I'm, um, you know, cutting out a whole bunch of the, the conversation here, right. that, um, you know, in another place in the Bible, in another place in salvation history, there was a willing victim who walked up a hill with wood on his back to be the the sacrifice of the father right and and i again the jaws just hit the floor like oh my goodness you mean that god actually planned this out all the way back then yeah and and it's not that that wasn't real for abraham and isaac it certainly was right but that's what typology does is takes that real event and helps us to see that God in that real event is already prefiguring the salvific event, the real event in Jesus Christ. And I love watching those light bulbs go on. I love seeing people come to that realization that the Eucharist is in Genesis 22. Mm-hmm. Right? In some way, you could think of, of typology as teaser trailers for the divine action. Oh, that's a good, that's a really, really good analogy. I love it. <laughs> You know, uh, I, it was. I've always um, looked at that story, uh, really, up until this year, and pictured uh, a very young um, Isaac, and yeah. and as you look into it, and you realize that no, Isaac really was the willing victim. He was uh, a grown man who could easily have have escaped had he wanted to, um, right. and so there is this, uh, Dad. I think you're crazy, but okay, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. But the kind of trust that 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 uh, requires, the kind of both on the part of of Abraham and Isaac, that that God is going to do what He says He'll do, is something that we can all uh, aspire to. That God is going to do what He says He'll do in our covenant as well. He's going to remain with us and provide for us in in a very specific intangible and ongoing and sustaining way. We're talking today with Derek Roddy, who is the uh, the Director of Evangelization and Discipleship at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We're talking about the solemnity, the feast, the celebration, uh, the recognition of the most holy body and blood of Christ, the Feast of Corpus Christi, as it's uh, colloquially and traditionally known. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the practices, the specific things that we do to celebrate this feast day. Uh, we're going to delve into the the processions, one of my favorite parts of it. But I want to hear about your favorite part of celebrating this feast. Come over and tell me on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Is there anything special that your parish does to mark this feast day? Don't go anywhere because there is much more conversation with Derek Roddy right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today with Derek Roddy, who's the uh, Director of Evangelization and Discipleship at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Jackson, Tennessee, talking about the solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ Um, and and our experience as converts uh, with the Eucharist. We started the episode reading the sequence that comes um, from... Uh, from the readings on on this feast day, uh, I wanted to start this section uh, reading one of the hymns out of the Office of Readings. Uh, that again, these are very catechetical and instructional and informative. As we meditate on them, they come to teach us about what's happening here in this Eucharist. So this uh, this is from the the Office of Readings for to, for tomorrow. Uh, and it's verbum supernum prodiens. The word of God from heaven came, but did not leave the Father's side, fulfilled his mission here on earth, and for mankind was crucified. The very night before he died, and to his passion he was led, he gave to his disciples life, his own true self in form of bread. His body and his precious blood he offered under either kind, and in the fullness of his love gave food of life to all mankind. Dear Savior, victim for our sins, to lead us to eternal life, protect and guard us in your grace and keep us from all earthly strife. To your great name be endless praise, O ever-blessed Trinity. We pray you grant us perfect life with you throughout eternity. This is one of those hymns written by St. Thomas Aquinas. This is the, obviously a, a translation and a paraphrase. But this feast gives us an opportunity to, to delve in deeply to these mysteries of the Eucharist and of Christ's promised and, and fulfilled promise, uh, his presence with us, that we will be his people and he will be our God and he will dwell among us. And there's a myriad of ways that this feast helps us to focus on that. Derek, one of my favorite things uh, as coming into the Catholic Church and, and celebrating these feasts are the processions, right? We, mm-hmm. we get to uh, follow Christ out of the church building, into the streets, uh, typically the processions that I've been on uh, haven't been terribly long, maybe just around the block, but hey, we're going to go out, we're going to be seen, we're going to let everybody see how crazy this is, that we're lifting up this monstrance underneath a, a canopy and walking around for some strange reason, right? Um, there is this otherness about it that uh, that just kind of stands out. What what has your experience been? Have have you uh, has your have your parishes done the procession? What was your first impression of that? If you uh, if you've done that, yeah, one one of them under uh, under Father Bill Parham, who I've who I've mentioned, um, we we did um, you know, and and you're right. This is this is strange in in Catholic world now, right? We had to go and we had to. Um, make the baldachin, right? And we had to, you know, we, there was nothing, there was no apparatus there for it already. So we had to do that. Um, 
and and you know as i've as i've thought of it you know i'm i'm a little bit um more kind of out there and bold right and my thought was like at that parish we were we were very close to like the main highway of the whole county why aren't we going out on that highway if we're going to do this we might as well do it right instead of just you know and and i've even had to 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 tell i mean and this is personal opinion right tell uh, pastors that if, well, if we're going to do a procession, why are we just going to do it in the church? Because mm-hmm. I think it's a more evangelical thing, right? It's a, it's a thing that ought to make the world stop a little bit and say, what the heck are they doing? Right. Um, now, granted, I get it. Like if you just did it in the church, there's the significance of, well, I follow Jesus everywhere. I, you know, I, I get all that. Right. But <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about my personal opinion. Um, so yeah, it has been. And in fact, this year with Corpus Christi coming up, I'm thinking again, I'm like, why don't we work on, you know, trying to do a, a procession, you know, a, a, a big celebration for Corpus Christi, because where you mentioned at the very beginning TL, I mean, look with our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, we, we all celebrate, um, uh, Easter. We all celebrate good Friday. We all celebrate Christmas, but they don't celebrate this. It makes us unique. It is a very, very unique Catholic feast day, right? Well, and, and there's a couple of things going on. One, Christ is worthy to be worshipped. Uh, and and so this procession is a way that we do that. Uh, two is this is one of those questionable acts that I talk about that make people go, what is that? And a question leads to an answer. Uh, and so it's a very... Um, it's a two birds with one stone passive way of evangelization. It's very evangelical, but it's not in any way proselytizing. It's just, this is what we believe. And if you've got questions, come up and ask. Um, There is a, and I'm going to get the feast day wrong. And all of you can correct me on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls, Twitter, the handles at outside the walls in the diocese of Tulsa. There are two parishes um, that uh, one time a year, and I think, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's on the feast day of St. Uh, Terribio Romo, um, go from, maybe it's a two-mile, two, three-mile walk, there is this huge procession on a main highway from one parish mm-hmm. to the other uh, on this feast day. And they've got n- not only... <laughs> Not only is it a procession, but they've got uh, the the brass instruments out there and all kinds of other cultural things added in. It's a big, festive, celebratory uh, procession, and everybody in North Tulsa is like, "What? What is that thing happening?" Right? <laughs> um, but it's a way for us to live a very visible, uh, joyous faith. That's a, another aspect of it is people kind of think, oh, we all just go in there and you're just dour and pointing out what, what everybody else needs to do. Um, but there is this vibrancy and this joy that we have and we need to take out and let everybody see. Yeah. And I see that in my own community, we are 50% Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And there's at least two times a year where the Hispanic community leads um, uh, Marian procession. Right. And, um, you know, they can be quite uh, extended right from up the up the highway. 
And, uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, that that's great. I, I, I'm devoted to the Blessed Mother myself. And um, but why why would we not as a parish engage in the the higher you know worship and procession uh of jesus and you know and, and and it's it's simply a matter of logistics right that you know um so maybe that's a, a call that i have to make for uh for, for for the coming years right you know and spend a whole year working on it out in um in lexington kentucky at the cathedral there one of the things that they do and may, maybe this is common practice i would not seen it before uh, is that at the feast of Corpus Christi, they had the the procession. They had the Eucharistic procession where um, the, the rector of the cathedral and all of the uh, the acolytes and altar servers were out in front. And then before everyone else, before all of the the congregation and the parishioners, um, they had all the first communicants in their wearing their uh, first communion outfit right up front with the Eucharist following behind. Um, and then the rest of us followed them. And, and what a beautiful picture of that. One, for them to be so close and to adore Christ and and have this moment where, I mean, that's that's a memory that's going to stand out as they're right there following the monstrance. Uh, but two, reminding the rest of us that these these children, these people have just gone through this process uh, and we should follow this procession and adore our Lord in this procession with the same fervor and joy that these seven-year-olds do. Yeah, my uh, my son, we, we lived in the Diocese of Charlotte when my oldest son received his first communion, and uh, they do the same thing at their annual Eucharistic Congress uh, in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina. So that was a, a really special moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm curious, what <clears throat> what was your, you, you got to this place as you came into the Catholic Church uh, where the Eucharist really was the instigator and, and the sufficiency and, and the, 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 the thing that drew you and the thing that completed your conversion. Um, I'm curious about your experience for the first time with either a Eucharistic procession or with Eucharistic adoration, because that's something that while the Episcopalian Church, the Methodist Church, all of these other places have communion in some sense, even though it's not uh, cons- uh, it's not con- celebrated in the same way or understood in the same way, none of them have uh, this, this adoration where we just put the host for our time of... of prayer and communion and closeness, and it's a different kind of way of interacting with the Eucharist. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks be to uh, uh, St. Francis, right? Because it is a, it's a fantastic devotion. Uh, it's, it's, it's my bread and butter, my go-to. We actually, at the parish where I serve, we actually have a perpetual Eucharistic adoration chapel, and I, uh, you know, I do my best to take the Fulton Sheen uh, approach, a holy hour every day, um, mm-hmm. you know, both for my family and for my job and just for the world. Um, it, not every day. I am a married man. I have work to do. I, you know, so I can't get it every day, but, but a lot of days I do. Now that goes back. Um, the, the pastor for whom I work now was my spiritual director for eight years in, in Memphis uh, when we, when we lived there. Um and his parish there had 
a perpetual adoration chapel. And so I would always visit our Lord either before or after spiritual direction because he's the best spiritual director, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as great as Father David uh, is at that, Jesus is the best spiritual director, and he would admit that. Um, I'll tell you, my first experience with, uh, with adoration was a little bit, you know, as a lot of things in Catholic parishes, kind of underwhelming, right? I knew that there was this thing called adoration and it happened on the first Friday of every month. And, and then all of a sudden one, one month, um, Kira, my wife and I, she was not my wife at that point, um, got asked by somebody to substitute for them. So we were going at, I don't know, nine o'clock at night or something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, what do you do? What do you do? So I, I took my Bible, I read some Bible and then I prayed the rosary and then, you know, um, it just, we were, we were young. We were in love. We were graduate. I was a graduate student. I had plenty of studying and reading to do. So it didn't, that very first one didn't like sink in as much. Mm -hmm. But um, when I got the opportunity, I was teaching at a university and it was right next to this parish where my spiritual director was. And, and um, I could just pop over, you know, after, after teaching my class, um, before daily mass. So each week I was getting, you know, three holy hours and, and daily mass three days a week. And that was really where my devotion to the Eucharist and my love for, for adoration just was cemented. Um, and I remember some particularly, uh, powerful, memorable experiences of God's love in that adoration that I don't have time to go into, um, that again, cemented my, my appreciation for it, my love for it, my need for it. It, had, it became my oxygen. And then I moved away uh, to a, a place where it, there was not that. Mm -hmm. I, I did have access to the chapel so I could be next to Jesus in the tabernacle, but not exposed. And looking back on that time of my life, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was suffocating in, mm -hmm. in some sense of not being able to be near Jesus in the Eucharist exposed. Yeah. Right. And so I would spend many hours in that chapel, just, you know, right up next to the tabernacle, but it's not the same. And that's the reason for the processions. That's the reason for uh, exposition. And, and I have just found that uh, that dynamic to be so true in my life. I, uh, you know, and, and I, I know I couldn't do without it. You know, I get that question a lot. What, what, what am I supposed to do at adoration? And that's a question I had myself. Um, when I was uh, in the aspirancy uh, for, the, for the diaconate in Tulsa, we would do uh, Vespers together as a community of, of those being formed. Um, start with Vespers, and then the rest of the hour was just spent in in adoration. And so some people brought some other spiritual reading, but I found that uh, just sitting with those words that we just prayed in Vespers and being absolutely silent was the most fulfilling thing for me. There was like this magnetic draw in my in my heart being taken toward the, the monstrance. And uh, I, I think of all the times that we go and we sit in the Eucharist and we 
<clears throat> we try to do something. We try to busy ourselves or find something to <clears throat> to do that's fulfilling as we're sitting in adoration. And, and it reminds me of those times where my wife and I are sitting in the same room and we both have our phones out and we're doing our thing, right? But, <laughs> but even though we're close to one another, there's not a a connection that's being made at that point because I'm trying to do the thing, right? That and and sometimes it is the in the absence of doing that we find that thing which is most fulfilling to us. Amen. Amen. I uh you know I've had periods in my life going to these uh holy hours um where I've got a big stack of you know, there's the breviary and there's this book and there's this text and 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 there's the catechism and 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 I I um, try to make sure that I get through all of them and that is completely uh, defeating the purpose of why I'm there. I'm there to connect with Jesus. And yes, in my spirituality, reading and studying does have the you know almost the same impact as prayer, and it is a way that I meet Jesus. But I have found just what you said, TL. I've more recently started um, praying. Um, just the just the office of readings mm-hmm. uh, there, and of course that gives you some reading to, to to ponder, right? But but then to to close it up and and just just meditate with Jesus, yeah. right? Um, let that roll through my mind and through my heart. We've been talking today with Derek Roddy, Director of Evangelization and Discipleship at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Jackson, Tennessee. Derek, thanks for taking the time today. No, it is my pleasure. Thank you, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Derek or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, we also have an extra segment. Earlier in the show, he was talking about um, uh, adoration and said, well, I don't have time to tell you that experience. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we do have time to share it with those who support the show through Patreon. Uh, He talks a little bit about that experience and more in this week's extra segment. Our Patreon supporters help keep us on the air, and you can find out more about that by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you study Scripture in light of tradition. You can learn more by going to Verbum.com. Uh, our reading today from Scripture comes from tomorrow, from the, the epistle, from Hebrews 9. Brothers and sisters, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come to be, passing through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not belonging to this creation, he entered once for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a heifer's ashes can sanctify those who are defiled so that their flesh is cleansed, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to worship the living God, For this reason, he is mediator of a new covenant, since a death has taken place for deliverance from transgressions under the first covenant, those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
That reading comes from the book of Hebrews. And here we return to this question again of typology. He is drawing out of the Old Testament and comparing to what Christ has done in the New Testament and saying, these are corollary, but Christ is the more perfect sacrifice, fulfilling all that God intended to do, to do with the first. And, and through those first sacrifices was pointing to the sacrifice of himself in Christ. And this sacrifice is expounded upon uh, in our reading from church history today, which comes from a work by St. Thomas Aquinas, who, who put together a lot of things to help us form and understand uh, the, the Eucharist, the, the hymns that we have read so far today, the, the, a number of treatises, and, and ultimately all of his work was centered in coming to understand the depths of God's love as demonstrated through the Eucharist. And so he says to us today, Since it was the will of God's only begotten Son that men should share in his divinity, he assumed our nature in order that by becoming man he might make men gods. Moreover, when he took our flesh, he dedicated the whole of its substance to our salvation. He offered his body to God the Father on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice for our reconciliation. He shed his blood for our ransom and purification so that we might be redeemed from our wretched state of bondage and cleansed from all sin. But to ensure that the memory of so great a gift would abide with us forever, he left his body as food and his blood as drink for the faithful to consume in the form of bread and wine. O oh, precious and wonderful banquet that brings us salvation and contains all sweetness. Could anything be of more intrinsic value? Under the old law, it was the flesh of calves and goats that was offered. But here, Christ himself, the true God, is set before us as our food. What could be more wonderful than this? No other sacrament has greater healing power. Through it, sins are purged away, virtues are increased, and the soul is enriched with an abundance of every spiritual gift. It is offered in the church for the living and the dead, so that what was instituted for the salvation of all may be for the benefit of all. Yet in the end, no one can fully express the sweetness of the sacrament in which spiritual delight is tasted at its very source, and in which we renew the memory of that surpassing love for us which Christ revealed in his passion. It was to impress the vastness of this love more firmly upon the hearts of the faithful that our Lord instituted this sacrament at the Last Supper. As he was on the point of leaving the world to go to the Father, after celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he left it as a perpetual memorial of his passion. It was the fulfillment of ancient figures— and the greatest of all his miracles, while for those who were to experience the sorrow of his departure, it was destined 
to be a unique and abiding consolation. That reading comes from St. Thomas Aquinas from the breviary on this solemnity of, we celebrate tomorrow of uh, the most holy body and blood of Christ. And I love this phrase here at the end. There's, I mean, there's so much we could talk about uh, because it's the Eucharist. It's the source and the summit. But this phrase here at the end, for those who were destined to experience the sorrow of his departure, it was destined to be a unique and abiding consolation. There have been um, a, a lot of times in my life where Eucharistic adoration has made a, a profound difference. But the times that it has been the most um, important to me, I think, are these times where it has been a unique and abiding consolation, where we experience the sorrow of his departure, not as those who followed him and watched his ascension, but for those of us who are left here afterward, uh, who, who see around us the, the loss of Christ's presence. We see it in the interactions in our culture. We see it in the injustices that exist in our world and individually in our lives. And we can say, I miss Christ's presence, the sorrow of his departure. And so this this act of Eucharistic adoration becomes a unique and abiding consolation because it is a place and a refuge to go and to say, Christ, uh, I need to be near you. I, I, just, I just need to be near you. Uh, and of course, yes, Christ hears our prayers wherever we pray, whether you're listening in the car and you're maybe one of the things I do very often on my commute to work is uh, to, to engage that time in prayer. Yes, God hears those prayers, absolutely. But there's something about presence. And really, if if anything, this pandemic should have taught us that because it's one thing to do a, uh, a phone call with a loved one. It's an entirely different thing to do a, a video call with a loved one. And it's yet a, a different and more profound experience to go and to sit next to the loved one, to share a meal, to be together, right? There is something about presence that matters. Yes, Jesus can hear us when we pray from the car or at bedtime or over our meal. Jesus is, is with us all the time. That was his promise. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But there is something about his presence, his presence in the Eucharist, that is a profound and unique and abiding consolation. So as we come to celebrate this feast, the solemnity of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you, if you've not had the opportunity or if you haven't done it in a while, go and spend some time with Christ present in the Eucharist through Eucharistic adoration. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Christopher Robin Webster and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Learn more by going to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link and consider joining their number. Join the ongoing conversation at Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. I want to know about a memorable experience you have with this feast. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.